Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Hello and welcome to the Thursday edition of A Public Affair on a beautiful winter day here in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm your substitute host, Bert Zipperer. Alan Ruff is off on a well-deserved midwinter break for a few days. So today, our guest is Laura Dresser. Welcome to WRT, Laura. Hey, Bert. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Hope it's good being had. So Laura, is, <laughs> <laughs> so Laura is the Associate Director of the UW's High Road Strategy Center, formerly known as COWS, or the Center on Wisconsin Strategies. Laura is an economist, and she's the author of a variety of publications, uh, most notably perhaps The State of Working Wisconsin, which comes out every two years. And Laura, you've been doing that for a bit over 25 years. It's an important examination of the real-life realities of Wisconsin's economy. So today's topic is the economy, but the real-life economy and how it's working for real people. So speaking of real people, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that this is a call-in or text-in radio program. So please call or text us your questions any moment you want and your comments. The phone number is 608-256-2001. We'd love to hear from you. And now on to Laura, who's a heck of a lot smarter than I am. So, so Laura, tell us about the High Strategy, High Road Strategy Center. Um, you're a think and do tank. Talk about that. We are indeed a think and do tank. And most folks, or some folks, will know of COWS, the Center on Wisconsin Strategy, which was our name from the early 1990s. And we're now... Um, uh, we just uh, this year in 2024 unveiled our new name, the High Road Strategy Center. And wow, the name Cows um, was a pretty good Wisconsin joke. And actually, a lot of people in Wisconsin found it pretty funny. Um, it also didn't really say what we did <laughs> very well. <laughs> There's a downside. It confused a lot of people. Um, and so um, the High Road Strategy Center is a good way to say what we do. We have projects relating to work, wages, job quality, and unions. That's the work that I mostly do. That includes the state of working Wisconsin, but also um, projects to support unions in Milwaukee with their work organizing service workers, uh, projects at the national level on the opportunity and job quality and um, um improving jobs for working people and access uh, for workers to jobs um, through different federal policy levers um, that I do a little bit. But we also have uh, experts on transportation uh, at the State Smart Transportation Initiative, which is housed here at COWS, who are thinking about how to move towards a more sustainable, more multimodal kind of transportation infrastructure for the nation. We have a network of uh, mayors thinking about progressive policy called the mayor's innovation uh, project and so we have a bunch of different things all of which are focused on the high road um, getting us all onto a higher road of more sustainability more equity more democracy um, and a kind of stronger life in our communities i love that more equitable sustainable and democratic society there is a great goal i can't hear bert i'm sorry okay that's okay. Most people would th think of that as a positive. Um, we just, we lost my audio. 
So now I, I can hear you. Okay. I was just saying how a more equitable, sustainable, and democratic society is a great goal. <laughs> well, it's a great goal. And I think, you know, one of the points of GAO's, uh, sorry, the High Road Strategy Center, is that it's possible that there are even under current conditions things we can do that are in that direction in the direction of sustainability democracy and equity and that those are things that um that can be created uh, here now and that's what cows uh sorry the high road strategy center uh, tries to do well and and you mentioned on the website that the fundamental problem is our inability to imagine that something different is really possible. And so tell us about the things that are going on to, to prove that it is possible. Yeah, I think that, I mean, just one thing is, I think it's really easy to, to have a pretty well-developed critique of things. Um, there's a lot of things to be critical of, and we certainly do a lot of criticism of the economy and um, structures uh, political structures in it. Um, but we try to demonstrate that a better, a high road possibility exists and is within reach. And, um, and that we do, we try to do in very concrete ways. Um, we've worked a long time, uh, with, um, labor leaders and business leaders in thinking about how community, uh, the technical colleges in the state can work better for working people because um, it can be hard to be working and getting um, the degrees and the skills you need to move ahead. And there's a lot of innovations, um, like just around that kind of very practical thing about how do we make uh, advancing your skills more accessible to people who actually hold jobs um, so there's a lot you can do there, but you could also, in the state of Wisconsin, you could raise the minimum wage, for example. Um, that would be another thing that would uh, make uh, life better for a lot of workers, make um, life easier, and would also, um, I think, increasing evidence from all over the country shows that the increased um, demand that those workers create and the decline in turnover costs that employers face mean that economies with higher minimum wages are doing better than in economies with lower minimum wages. So it's sort of better for everybody, um, but especially bet, best for um, low wage workers. So things like that are um, kind of some maybe concrete examples of the high road. But I wanna go back to your question about hope really, Bert, because to me, the question of believing something is possible is part of what makes it possible. Yes, exactly. And the, and the more that we all try to live into or live towards or create what we think this uh, community, state, nation, world need to be, uh, the more we're moving in that direction. And that feels like an important part of it, too. Well, you, you do the, the State of Working Wisconsin, which comes out uh, every two years. Um, Tell us about the positive things in the State of Working Wisconsin regarding that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's an interesting time in the economy. Um, you know, we, we, we now we update it every year. We started out every other year, but okay. now we kind of update it every year for Labor Day. And um, we uh, and so I've been watching and writing about, you know, workers in the economy and what's going on for, like you said, Bert, since the first one we released was 1996. So we're getting close to 30 years. 
I know that hopefully there's some people listening who've been have never known a world without the state of working Wisconsin. <laughs> Me. <laughs> so, so um, you know, it's it's, um, and I would say that from my long life of writing this report, you know, I'm always focusing on two things. Uh, one is a very long-term story in the American economy about a fundamental shift uh, that has kind of increased the power of workers, I'm sorry, increased the power of um, capital and employers and firms and pushed down the power of workers. This is a 40, 50 year story that goes back before even the first day of working in Wisconsin and is about the inequality that this economy um, delivers. It is about uh, corporate uh, ability to gain, take gains, and as the economy grows, secure those gains for shareholders and the wealthy rather than to distribute gains broadly. That long-term story is always true, always going on in the background. But then there's cyclical variation across that. Um, higher and lower unemployment rates, collapses of the economy as in 2008, the Great Recession. Um, and so I've written a lot about or a lot of really bad times. And in that short term cycle, I have never seen so many good things oh, tell as, us, I see, tell us as about, I see today. Tell us about the good things today. This is great. <laughs> so these are the short term good things. I, I, you know, I know some of your listeners are like, but no, things are bad. And, and you know, not everything is corrected by a few years of low unemployment. But, but a little a bit of hope years, is a good thing. A little bit of hope and a lot of low unemployment is a really good thing for workers. And Excellent. I, I think. I think sometimes people forget. I think we focus on the people who don't have jobs when we talk about unemployment. But when we talk about unemployment, we also need to see all the people who know there's not a line at the door, right? So when people are in jobs and they know they're hard to replace, they demand more from those jobs. So a low unemployment rate is not just about not having a lot of people who literally don't have jobs and are looking for jobs, which is sort of the original, the first focus. But the second focus is a low unemployment rate means that workers see they have leverage. And I think the last two years, the story, there's a pretty consistent story to say that workers are seeing that they have leverage. They are using that leverage. They are moving jobs when the jobs will not meet the demands they make. Um, they are staying in the jobs and demanding more from the jobs. They are doing these things in individual ways and collective ways, formally through unions and informally through just, you know, saying this isn't going to work for us and we'll leave. <laughs> you know, we're putting the sign on the window like we're shut because my because our employers aren't giving us uh, cleanup time. You know, like whatever. You can see like workers demanding more for work and getting more from it. That is good. So that's that's the good news, I think. In this in this last couple of years, so we are listening in in the company of Laura Dresser, economist at the High Road Strategy Center at the University of Wisconsin. We invite you to call or text in with your comments and questions for Laura Dresser at 608-256-2001. or if you're listening at wortfm.org, you can just text in from there. Um, Laura, you mentioned the minimum wage in Wisconsin being abysmally low, which I believe is tied to the federal minimum wage. So. Let's remind everyone, what is that minimum wage in Wisconsin? The, the, the federal and Wisconsin minimum wage is 
uh, $7 and 25 cents an hour. Wow. Well, and, um, an insult. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned about the bad news for decades and it, I believe 1973 was a high point for wages um, in the United States. And it happened to be my senior year of high school. So it's been downhill ever since I graduated from high school in some ways. Um, So it's good to have some hope. The labor movement has been the story for a while. Talk about Wisconsin's labor movement. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really easy to, um, and for those of uh, your listeners uh, who were around in, for Act 10 in 2011, it's really easy to focus on the brutality of that restructuring that made public sector unions, uh, kind of took away almost all the meaningful power that public sector unions had. Um, they still exist in the state, they still fight, they still uh, win things, but, but uh, being a public sector union is a much harder game ever since Act 10. It's really easy to focus on Act 10. A few years later, we passed so-called right to work. I um, It gets called right to work legislation. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's like um, uh, union avoidance, how to keep unions from working very well kind of legislation. But that happened and that impacted private sector unions. And I think it's really um, because so many of us live that so intensely, it's easy to kind of focus our our uh, our history of unions in this state on those two. And I should say again, this is a long term thing. Like you, before Act Ten and right to work in this state, Wisconsin had relatively high unionization rates. We are now below national averages. Like those were effective pieces of state policy to um, to bring down unionization rates. That said, all over this state, uh, workers are uh, workers who are in unions are going on strike. You, workers are demanding and winning at the bargaining table. Workers are um, organizing new units and uh, in places that work uh, work has not been organized. I do some work with um, service workers in Milwaukee that are at centered around the Deer District, but um, Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers uh, who are changing wage standards in the service um, industry. So there's a lot of exciting organizing going on in the state, and it's important to see that. And also in this moment when there's this sort of national thing and we can focus on Starbucks, and um, which has happened here some, and Amazon, which hasn't happened here much, um, or even looking at the UAW and their their big win this year. There's a lot of great news nationally mm-hmm. in the labor movement. And there's a lot of interest. You know, young people are super uh, interested in and supportive of unions. The general population is as supportive as unions as it was in 1965 and hasn't been since then. Wow. So, yes. you know, like there's all sorts of ways you can see it. So it seems to me that... Um, the political party that's been largely in power um, across Wisconsin for more than a decade, the Republicans, seem to thrive on austerity and having to cut because there just isn't enough money. And it seems that they're having a hard time explaining we don't have enough money and we have $7 billion, um, <laughs> which to me is quite a stretch. Um, the cuts to education in particular and the, the, the refusal to fund a lot of stuff except for uh, basketball stadiums and baseball stadiums in Milwaukee. Um, talk talk about the state role in the economy, if you could. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot. Um, I think sometimes we want to think just about economic development deals. Um, and the classic from the Walker era is the Foxconn scam. Mm, yes. Um, which was uh, millions of dollars and tons of property that turned into literally nothing. Um, so one thing about economic development is that these big corporate giveaways um, leave taxpayers holding the bag and um, are not the way to develop economy, an economy. Um, and we see, um, I mean, I think Foxconn is the last, well, the stadium, as you say, you can see these sort of giveaways, tax structured giveaways to uh, already rich. And that seems like an economic development strategy that that the state has sort of pursued. Um, you know, just over the border, uh, just over the Mississippi River in Minnesota, there's a kind of different, I think, strategy around what economic development can mean in the long run. And I think it really is an investment strategy, an investment in schools and infrastructure, schools at every level uh, from, you know, they've got innovations going on for their childcare and early care and education industry. They've got investments going into the K-12 system. They've got investments going into the higher ed system. Um, they've got the higher minimum wage. They've got increasing unionization. They've got um, a lot of things moving on a kind of what I would call a high road direction um, on the other side of the river. But, you know, with a very similar starting point, Wisconsin continues to kind of chose corporate giveaways and divestment in public things. And I think that really does harm us in the long run in terms of our even our ability to um, grow economically in ways that is in interest of both capital and workers, really. So I think it's really hamstringing a kind of future looking thing. I think, yeah. No, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, one of the ways I think it really stands out is like the approach to uh, sustainability and the necessary electrification of everything in order to move away from the carbon heavy um, uh, kind of methods of energy production. And this has to happen. <laughs> and states have to do this. And you can see states, conservative states like um, Texas really embracing it better than Wisconsin. Like Wisconsin is sort of, it feels like the leadership is resisting uh, a lot of the most important innovations that could move us in a greener or more sustainable uh, direction simply out of animus um, and maybe that kind of sense of austerity. But it really will not serve us in the long run to drag our heels on that, both from a planet perspective, but also just from a, you know, being part of the future economy and not just the past. Just from a mindset of seeing an expenditure as a cost versus an investment mm -hmm. seems kind of fundamental. Yeah. And, and I think we've too often in this state kind of set aside investment like we have a conversation around state taxes sometimes in this state uh, a very conservative one that generates that austerity we need to you know the 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 only agenda it's it seems like the major agenda coming out of the legislature these days is to give money back right right when schools need money we you know like there's demonstrable need in schools there's demonstrable demand from rural and urban districts on what they need to make schools work well. And and even with a very broad 
kind of demand for that. You can see the same around childcare. We have money. There's employers and childcare industry leaders and childcare workers and parents who all are saying the same thing from all across the state. And it just gets resisted. Um, that kind of investment, that kind of idea of like building, right. um, taking this kind of giant surplus and really building something better from this state. It, it, it's stunning to me because I've been in Central America and I've, I've read a lot of history. And as people develop communities, um, after they build their home, this, one of the next things, one of the next two things is schools. People always build a school in order to build for the future. I, I'm not familiar with stories of people saying, let's get rid of schools. Let's get rid of UW campuses, for example, um, yeah. as, as a positive. And it, it really um, leaves me cold and stuns me hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does. It feels, yeah, there's a lot of levels of kind of like, uh, you know, you think you're talking about something everybody would agree on. <laughs> yes, I, don't, I, yes. don't, I don't always think I'm talking about something everyone would agree on. But yeah. when I'm talking about schools, um, I, I do feel like I'm talking about something that everybody would agree on. And, um, yeah. You know, sometimes in this state. That's a really good point. Oh. You just sort of get blindsided. Um, we're listening and having a conversation with Laura Dresser, uh, an economist at the UW's High Road Strategy Center. We'd li- love to invite you to call us at 608 256 2001 or at wortfm.org. If you're online, you can just text us right straight from there. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and thoughts. Um, and we've got plenty of time to include you. Um, Laura, let's talk about investments briefly. Um, You mentioned how the U.S. compares to other countries in the post-pandemic economy yesterday, and I had never heard that anywhere else. So, um, and it was really good news, and I like good news. So so talk about that. I so rarely get to be a ray of sunshine. Look at me on this snowy day. The curse of being an economist. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly I'm like, yeah, things are bad. Uh, But no, this, this, uh, this story of the U.S. response to the COVID pandemic shutdown, the policy response, and the recovery is quite remarkable. And I, it is worth uh, repeating. I think um, if you compare in terms of the size of the recovery and the labor market being back to above the level it started at, uh, the U.S. got there before most countries um, and remains ahead. If you're looking at the question of what's going on with inflation, um, because the entire globe faced an increase in inflation uh, generated by um, supply chain problems and the uh, war in Ukraine and disruptions to um, delivery systems, uh, but the inflation in was uh, sorry in the in the U.S. is actually come down more quickly than in other countries. I generally, when I'm talking um, uh, when I'm talking about U.S. versus other country comparisons, I tend to be talking about how we, especially with Europe and and other kind of higher income countries, I'm, I tend to be talking about the lack of infrastructure, but. I think what we really did during the pandemic and 
uh, during the intensity of the COVID shutdown um, is we made some massive investments in people and we have been making massive investments since um, the infrastructure, um, the infrastructure bill, the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes a lot of the climate things and the electrification that's going on, and the CHIPS bill that focuses on domestic manufacturing, all are like really kind of massive programs that are having a real impact on people's opportunities every day. That's great. Thank you, Laura. Hey, Laura, we've got Richard on the line. He, he has a comment about the power of the people. So, Richard, welcome to WORT's A Public Affair. It's good to have you. Thanks, Bert. I know you. Richard Wagner here. Oh, hey. How's it going? <laughs> it's going. Uh, well, you know, everything's a mixed grill. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to take up too much time here. Um, it seems like such a wide-ranging discussion about a whole lot of things. Um, and I just wanted to ask uh, Laura and you, Bert, a question about uh, why this is not a good idea. <clears throat> and so I have zero faith that the government can do anything and give us any solutions because you need this majority of people, and we're never gonna have a majority of people decide, hey, let's have train travel in Dane County and just do it, right? Um, it takes a lot of uh, everyone's in money, and it makes us as citizens passive because we're waiting for the government to do something, and waiting for better leaders when that's never going to happen. And so uh, we're gonna celebrate uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day soon, and in his last speech, he gave us this blueprint of how to affect substantial change. Uh, and it's a wonderful, if you, don't, if you have never heard it, it's really, really a wonderful speech. And so at the end, he says, yeah, we can protest and all of this kind of stuff. But what we need to do is to anchor all of our um, uh, things into economic withdrawal and economic support. And so he says, we go to these businesses, uh, and he names names in the speech. It's pretty cool. And he says, we don't like how you're treating God's children. And so it's our mission. So either you change or it's our mission to pull economic support from you. And then what do we do with it? Well, we invest in, in companies that are doing good things. And so it seems to me that uh, a good Madison, a good Dane County, a good Wisconsin is uh, what? Uh, walkable neighborhoods full of local businesses uh, selling locally produced goods and services as much as possible, connected by uh, public, good public transportation. Um, and so what we need to do is to invest in small businesses. And it seems to me the way to do that uh, is just to uh, support small businesses uh, and to withdraw our support from the big businesses who are, they're not developing wealth in Dane County, they're mining wealth from Dane County. And so in order to develop the wealth, we need to support um, smaller businesses and withdraw buying from Walmart or Amazon or any chain restaurants or anything. And if I do that, no one will care. But if we got a substantial portion of people to do that publicly, I think it would change a lot of things. So my question is, why is that not a good idea? Okay, Richard, thank you. Let's let's go to Laura. Laura. Um, uh, nice, nice to uh, meet you over the airwaves, Richard. And um, I, I think, uh, I think the power of uh, collective action is always worth harnessing. I think um, it's a solid idea to, um, with real target and real organization, uh, demand more of uh, corporations uh, and local. Uh, you know, in 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 any setting, right? And we have great examples of when corporations have been targeted by movements of people and changed what they were doing, right? And so whether that's 
you know, the great boycotts or the um, students uh, demand um, students' demands around NRA endorsements um, that really shifted who was giving money to the NRA um, mm -hmm. after uh, the shootings in Florida. And and so, you know, there are examples, I think, always of that kind of thing. I want to I sort of emphasize part of the point or the, the part of the theme that you're making, though, um, Richard, which is... Um, I don't, I, I wouldn't privilege consumer action over all other action. I think anytime people are moving together on a priority, it helps shift power and it helps people in power. It changes what people in power see as possible. So I really do believe that there is the question of moving, um, you know, workers moving together to form unions, to demand more from their work. Uh, is an enormous point of leverage and can really make a difference. And it also changes the way uh, political leaders talk about unions, right? Or the kind of policies they consider for unions. So every time people are in motion and are winning, it changes what's possible at a policy level. Those aren't set positions, but they are interactive with the mobilization of people. So I really do believe that the mobilization of people, whether it's in that consumer kind of way that, that Richard drew out or the movements that we've seen that have demanded things of, of corporations and of politicians. I think it's always that question of the demand and the organization of the demand. I have nothing better to add to that, Laura. That's, that's great. Thank you. Hey, we've got a second caller. Carrie's on the line with a question about universal basic income. So Carrie, welcome to WORT as a public affair. Hey, I'm just wondering whether Laura knows anything about that pilot program. Is it in Milwaukee that's going on? And, you know, what what is its purpose? How are they going to measure whether they make its purpose? Well, how's it doing? Just, you know, kind of an update. I'm just curious. And, you, I'll, and I'll listen online now. Well, thanks, Carrie. So the universal basic income, Laura, um, there, there's a few examples around this around the state. Talk about those. Yeah, I um I can't give you the update on the Milwaukee program, uh, Carrie, but I can talk about the general idea and the different ways it's showing up. I was part of the task force for the Forward Fund, which was uh, the Madison, the city of Madison, uh, universal guaranteed income. Of course, these things are um, not always universal, at least at this point, they're mostly experimental. And so they are not truly universal, but the idea is what if we had universal? Um, and generally, I think right now the word of guarantee, the word is guaranteed rather than basic because none of, most of the innovations, I think there's some experimentation with truly basic income that could cover the cost of living, but most, most of the experiments that I um, am familiar with in the US context are really more at that kind of um, income supplement, $500, $1,000 a month, like it helps, it makes an enormous difference to the people who get it, but it does not really count as basic income. It wouldn't be able, they wouldn't be able to survive only on that. Um, I think this is an important, uh, you know, kind of uh, place where there's real innovation and insight. Sometimes I'm frustrated by the need to, uh, I think we do a lot of research on this, and I sometimes feel like um, what we do when we kind of study a program of delivering money to people is that we prove that when you give people money, they have more money, right? Like, yes, they're less poor. Yes, they're more happy because having money 
allows you to, you know, kind of live with a little more freedom. Um, and we, I think we all, in some ways, or I feel like I know that, especially for folks who are facing serious income constraints, $500 makes an enormous difference in terms of being able to survive. Um, and so there's, so there's policy innovation and interest. One of the amazing uh, innovations in the um, pandemic relief was the two years of childcare. I mean, not child, but child, you know, supplemental income for people with kids made in, and that was like, that was actually universal kid facing income, uh, time limited, but made an enormous difference for families in getting through the, the struggle of the of the pandemic, and I think that that you see these innovations, that you see that was possible, even if limit time limited, at it in the policy in the U.S. Um, at the federal level. I think it's really an exciting frontier in the ways people are thinking about what the economy can do and how we can support each other. I love it when people like you, Laura, as economists, have reports on things that happened and demonstrate that it was really a great idea and we should do more of it. It's 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 so hopeful and it's 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 basic information that we we get plenty of bad information or bad news and and uh, I really appreciate that. Um we're listening and had in conversation with Laura Dresser, economist at the UW Center uh, High Road High Road Strategy Center, formerly known as COWS. Um She's fabulous, and we would love to hear your questions and comments at WORT here, 608-256-2001, or if you're online listening, WORTFM.org. Um, there, you can text us straight from there if you don't feel like talking. So back to Laura. Laura, Laura I, I was reminded listening to you that old Paul Wellstone comment, that's where I remembered from, that everyone does better when everyone does better. Um, that seems to be like a basic truth that's sort of hidden in a lot of, a lot of days. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of a, a central high road idea, right? Is that um, by investing in people and by building more together, we can all have more. It will take some redistribution. It will take some, there, there is some, you know, there is some uh, power building about, to make the democracy work better for working people, right? Like um, in terms of the relative power of corporations and 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 um, workers, but I really do think that you find, you know, whether it's whether you're looking at states with different um, minimum wages and how those states are working economically, whether they have growth in their low wage sectors or not, um, you see stronger low wage sector growth in higher minimum wage states than you do in the lower minimum wage states. That's we we're all doing better when we're all doing better, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you see on an international level stronger economic growth when it is more uh, when it is more equal when when growth pays off at the middle. And the U.S. is at sort of nineteen twenty nine levels of inequality, so that growth really pays off for the rich, but not for as much for the middle, and that. Um, and that's a policy choice, how much we make sure that we all do better when we all do better. So um, that's, I think the high road theme is tucked in there too, about how you get to a place where we're all doing better together. Yeah, I'm reminded of the Equity Trust in England, um, headed up by Richard Wilkinson, who did a, a, a generation of research on epi medical epidemiology and just demonstrated that 
when there's less inequality, people's health and social connections actually improve. But physical health is is dramatically improved when um, he says people realize if they're treated, being treated badly, they're not being respected, and that, that has a huge effect on one's physical health. Um, and I think also about fear in that case, right? Yes. Like even people who are doing better, they fear what happens if they lose their good position because they know yes. they fall out of favor, right? And so that you've got fear running through you, even when you're in a good position in an unequal society, in a way that you just, with with equality kind of helps take that away. No, that that's a huge insight. So if you're doing well in, in, an, in an unequal society, um, there's fear. There's also guilt. He highlights, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, yeah. If here's here's a question I have. Quite often, hear people talk about, "Gee, we should have better access to healthcare. We should have maybe look at student loans um, issues." I, I'm struck by the fact that there isn't the word rights. That people have a right to healthcare. Period. People have a right to education as far as they want to go as far as your effort and skills will go. Um, it's a stunning thing in this country. It, it, are, are we somehow an outlier in, in that? Well, um, when was the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a 1948. Yeah, 48, somewhere around there. 48, thank you. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure the year. Um, and uh, a lot of the ideas, I think there were ideas of contributors from the U.S., but the U.S. has never been a signatory, right? Like it isn't um, it isn't in our uh, kind of common way of thinking to uh, common, most mainstream ways of thinking, I would say, to to center things as rights, though we see instances where rights came to be. Right. Right. So, um, you know, the and 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 always the struggle to expand the right to 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 truly everyone right so um i think you know workers comp and the social insurance programs that are all a kind of product of the new deal uh including uh social security are really rights and they turn into things that become very politically durable because they are rights um and and the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, in many ways did not go far enough, but it established greater access to cares and proved to be much more durable mm-hmm. than any of us, I think, uh, imagined. And, um, and, and, and just this year, 20 million people have signed up uh, into, the, into the ACA marketplace more uh, than, than ever before, right? So it's still a vibrant like space of access. It's not the healthcare system we need. It doesn't give access to truly everyone, but it is a giant uh, a step forward from what we had before the ACA. So we still do kind of struggle forward on these things, but almost never with a rights uh, framework in words so much. I'm struck by, and, and you highlighted some history there. I, I, love, I love what you just said, but there's FDR's um, last seat of the union address in 1944 where he outlined the Economic Bill of Rights that he wanted to propose, and then he died. Um, yeah. but, but, but I think those Economic Bill of Rights, um, I have a poster of those up. Um, that, that was an example of, like, this is what a right should be, how to, how to live, physically live. Um, 
You were going to say something. Go ahead. Oh, I think I was going to say, I think the poor people's movements had um, yes. rights. The poor people's movement in the late 60s, early mm-hmm. 70s was really rights-based, rights-focused language as well. Um, P- people coming in and taking over the assembly at the state capitol here in 1969 or 70. Cool. Yeah. Well, there's a day. <laughs> um, you mentioned to me when we were talking before the show about this fr- framework and how Margaret Thatcher loved to highlight Tina, that we must do this terrible thing to you because Tina, T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, this really relates back to your question about hope in the beginning in a way. I think we are so, um, it's pretty easy to feel like the economy functions um, and political decisions function and all of these sit outside of our spheres of influence. And there's no other way to run. I mean, that was her point is like, you can want better things, but there's no alternative to this brutal capitalism that I am trying to bring about <laughs> in um, the UK. And and uh, and Reagan was our own version of that, right? That we had to figure out how to uh, kind of survive on the terms that we were be- are being given to us by markets it it really does the invisible a- hand then becomes like this force outside of our agreements just a fact of life like um you know a storm or uh you know well a fact of life the storm is influenced by climate change but um but i'm trying to get something that's you know like a meteor landing something that's that's just not in our control and we don't imagine that we could do anything to make it different and that when we concede that when we concede to there is no alternative we make this reality we solidify it and make it possible right and so i think one of the things that cows has tried to do is say like look there are things you can do now there are options and opportunities and differences in the ways that people are doing uh, doing their economies, Mm -hmm. even under the same international global capitalist structure. And these are choices. The market is something we make, not something that comes to us like a media. Exactly. It's made by humans. It can be changed by humans. It can be improved by humans. Absolutely. And so that's sort of the that's, you know, it relates back to that theme of hope or agency, like who who's in charge here and how do we work together to change the terms? It highlights Richard's point uh, half an hour ago about people collectively coming together and demanding better. Um, we're listening and in conversation with Laura Dresser. We've got about 10 minutes left in the hour. Um, we'd love to invite you to call in 608-256-2001. And join the conversation with Laura Dresser, economist at the UW High Road Strategy Center, formerly known as COWS. Now, COWS, I'm sorry, COWS, the High Road Strategy (laughs) Center um, has the high road strategy of democracy, sustainability, equity. Um, Talk about those hopeful stories. Talk about what, what, I think hope is like that fuel, that, that nutrition that we all need to give each other because with hope, Anything's possible, but that Tina, that, that there is no alternative, rips out the hope, and now we're our own worst enemies. So tell us the hopeful stuff. Give you some more hope? Yes. All right. Um, I will. Oh, I want to talk a little bit more about minimum wages because um, I think a lot of folks know that uh, um, 
minimum wages are higher in 30 other states. It is true that the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, and Wisconsin is with 19 other states at $7.25 an hour. But here's the things you really can do, um, including, uh, you know, uh, so states have raised their minimum wages, but some states have indexed their minimum wages to inflation. This is possible. This is doable. This is taking wages up to $16 in some states minimum wages up to $16 in some states um, this year. Um, also in Minnesota, and I want to say this to all tipped workers who are listening to this call, in Minnesota, the guaranteed wage the employer pays you is no different for a tipped employee than it is for uh, any other worker. So there is no tip credit. There is no $2.33 like we get paid here on your hourly for a tipped worker. They get paid 10.35 an hour, and then they get tips on top, on top of that. When I think about why this state might struggle with a labor shortage, and I'm choosing a restaurant job on one side of the Mississippi or the other, obviously we all go work where you get 10.35 plus the tips instead of the place where you get to 2.33 plus tips. So these are like, like it, there's a lot inside. Um, I know there's big stories of hope and, and some of those, but there's like, all sorts of tinkering that can go on. And I discovered just even this year, um, to my surprise, that even Iowa has a higher tipped wage than we do. They're at four, $4 and change. Even Iowa. Wow. Like, I was not better us in any way, usually on these economic <laughs> measures. Wow. On that one. So that's, that's when I think of like all these things you can do about the minimum wage, not just raise it, but index it and think about your tipped workers and, um, really be aggressive about the minimum wage that's what a lot of states have done does anybody have a maximum wage <laughs> well that would be more aggressive and no no one does uh but uh yes and 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 one thing you're pointing out for it is that like one of the ways you can see the just explosion of inequality over the last 30 years is the difference between the median worker in a plant and the highest wage worker uh, sorry the the corporate the ceo and all that. And so much of their earnings is tucked into non-wage things that even that underestimates how different things are. But I got the luck of hearing uh, Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, um, during the contract negotiations. I was at a conference that he came and talked to. And he talked about uh, just seeing that money and always putting it on the table in negotiations. I think there's a lot a stronger rejection of the inequality and a lot more attention to really moving some of the wealth of this nation back to the people who have created it. Um, so that's some, that's another positive thing. That's great. It seems like there's a real emphasis in this, in this campaign season coming up um, to focus on economic grievances and, uh, and to miss the positives. Um, and, and there's, there's grievances. I, um, but I, I think um, it was hopeful to see a, uni a union leader wearing a T-shirt that said "Eat the Rich" at, at a press conference, which which was like, "Wow, I've not seen that in a long time." So, so we're we're going to have to wrap up here in about three minutes or so, three four minutes. Um, what what do we need to focus on that we haven't? What have, what have I not oh. covered on? Well, I appreciate you keeping the focus, Bert, on what is possible. I think there's an important tension here. I don't want to act like right. things are great right. or easy, right? 
or that all the problems are solved by a couple of years of low unemployment rates or the fact that people like unions now, right? Like the brutal fact is that even though more people like unions, there are fewer, uh, the share of workers represented by unions continues to fall slightly yep. each year. Yep. So, so I don't want to like kind of, but I do think it is really important to see what is good and to see where power is and to see how workers in a low unemployment rate have a little bit more power relative to their employer and they can demand more. And when they see that and when they see each other seeing that, they can demand more, right? And exactly. so so for me, that's like the kind of balance on it is is not to pretend that everything's solved, but also to not pretend that that nothing is, um, you know, that nothing's better. Yeah, we, we can't be our own worst enemy. We can't be, well, it, it's all terrible, just give up. It's like, oh no, oh no. Um, we, we don't lose unless if we quit. And, and they don't win unless if we quit, so we're not going to quit. Yeah. Um, so to tell us more, um, what, what's your new projects at the High Road Strategy Center? Well, we, um, we are writing a little bit about the new contract that the workers at the Buck Stadium uh, got this year, and so uh, the Deer District workers. Um, so we'll be releasing that in this uh, coming up. And... Uh, trying to work with partners from Worker Justice Wisconsin and Kids Forward and MASH and others to really raise up questions of um, raising wages, how workers can bring the floor up, how the state can enforce uh, and improve our kind of ability to hold up the bottom of the labor market. Um, so we're trying to kind of stay connected and reach out and uh, be of use uh, to folks who are trying to make make work work better, and uh, that'll be it'll be a good year, I think. Well, I told you on the phone that you are one of those people that after I listen to you, I feel smarter, and, <laughs> and, and no one's ever said that about me, but uh, I, I am saying that about you. Just that um, I, I really, really appreciate you sharing uh, the work that you're doing and that you have been doing. Uh, for a generation plus and and I just want to say how much I appreciate it because this is serious work um, keeping hope alive and and keeping pushing and keeping us informed about what is good and what is possible and so we we aren't our own worst enemies um, uh, one last word and then and I'll let you go um, well thanks Thanks a lot, Bert. It's great to be in conversation with you, to get to hear from a couple of the uh, folks who are listening. Um, to share our new name, uh, you can find us at highroad.wisp.edu. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm I'm really glad to get to be part of this conversation and, and appreciate you reaching I, out. I really appreciate you being here. So, Laura Dresser of the UW High Road Strategy Center, formerly COWS, has been our guest this hour. I, I really, really appreciate it, Laura. I hope you have a great rest of the day and enjoy that snowstorm tomorrow. Yeah, you too. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks to all of our listeners. And I'd like to thank Ricky out there at the reception desk, Jack, the engineer who made it all happen here, uh, Jade, Jade, the producer, who really coordinates the whole thing, and Shali, who does all good things here at WRT. I am Bert Zipper. I will see you next week. Have a good week. Stay warm. We come and listen, it's a 